Welcome to the final episode in our series on faithful leadership. We're bringing you in-depth conversations to help you ponder what it means to be a faithful and wise leader. In today's episode, we have Mark Laberton, Claude Alexander, and Walter Kim discussing how Christians can engage in public dialogue without resorting to timidity or belligerence. It's easy to think about public faith in terms of our public character. In other words, how we conduct ourselves in public. And that's critical, that's very important. The posture, the characters of integrity, the ability to bring joy and peace to others. But there's a, a deeper issue at stake of not merely character, but the very presence of the gospel in society, the presence of faith in society. This episode is an edited version of our online conversation from August of 2021. You can find the full video of that conversation on our website, ttf.org. And check out the show notes on this episode for links to further resources. Here's Sheree Harder. The question that we're discussing today, how do we live faithfully in a world often skeptical to or even hostile to our loves and deepest convictions is a timeless one but it takes on increased urgency and complexity in polarized times. And by any measure, we are in such times. Some studies have shown that America is more divided and polarized than at any point since the Civil War. The nodes of ideological consensus have not only grown further apart and more extreme, but also more philosophically incoherent. And the most significant increases over the last decade have come in the rise of what's been called effective polarization. The belief that those who disagree with you are not only mistaken, but malicious, such that by some studies, nearly one in five partisans on either side of the extremes believe that the country would be better off if large numbers of the opposing party simply died. Unfortunately, the church has not been immune from these trends. Instead, we've all seen examples of friendships, communities, churches, even entire denominations torn apart by political disagreements and our inability to reckon with them. So how do we live faithfully, do justice, and love mercy in an often unfair, angry, and merciless world? How do we reconcile the competing claims of doing justice and seeking peace? What does it mean to have a public faith in polarized times? These are obviously big questions and there's no easy answers. So I am particularly glad and grateful to welcome to the conversation what could be called three wise men who have wrestled with such questions over a long period of study, service and leadership marked by thoughtfulness, insight, and grace. Mark Laberton, Claude Alexander, and Walter Kim. Mark Laberton is the president of Fuller Seminary, having previously served as the professor of preaching and the director of the Ogilvy Institute for Preaching at that same seminary. Before coming to Fuller, he served as a Presbyterian minister for 30 years, including as the senior pastor of the First Presbyterian Church of Berkeley, California. He's also served as the co-founder of Scholar Leaders International, the chairman of John Stott Ministries, and a senior fellow of the International Justice Mission, and currently holds a host a podcast entitled Conversing, where he explores a large range of topics ranging from civility, suffering, race, gender equality, and many other topics. 
Joining him is Claude Alexander, who has served as the senior pastor of the Park Church in Charlotte, North Carolina for more than three decades. Under his leadership, Park Church grew from one local congregation of around 600 people or so to a global ministry of many thousands with three locations and a weekly international reach. In addition to his work at Park Church and within the community of Charlotte, Claude also serves on the boards of the Charlotte Center the Charlotte Center Centi Partners, Christianity Today, Mission America Coalition, the Council for Colleges and Universities, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, Movement.org, and is the chairman of the board of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Last but certainly not least, Walter Kim is the president of the National Association of Evangelicals. He ministered for more than 15 years at Boston's historic Park Street Church, as well as serving as the senior pastor for leadership at Trinity Presbyterian Church in Charlottesville, Virginia, where he currently also serves as teacher in residence. He has spent nearly three decades preaching, writing, and engaging in collaborative leadership to connect the Bible to the significant intellectual, cultural, and social issues of the day. Mark, Claude, and Walter, welcome. It's great to see you. Thank great you. Great to be here. Thank you. So just to start out, those of us who share a Christian faith would seem to have a basis and a bridge to extend beyond differences, as well as an imperative to love one's neighbor, live humbly, and seek justice. But in our sort of crazy times, it hasn't always worked out that way. By most studies and most measurements, there's not a big difference between the church and outside of the church in terms of the levels of polarization that we find. So just as we start out, why is the faith community as fractured and divided as the broader public? And Mark, I'm gonna throw that one to you to start us off. Thanks, Jerry. It's an honor to be part of this. I think the first thing that comes to my mind is that we're in a period of a very deep confusion around Christian identity. And so much of the polarization really arises out of that because our identity hasn't really, it seems to me, been fundamentally formed by the gospel, nearly so much as it's been formed by our sociology. And the sociology is, by definition, incredibly uh, polarized and diverse in any case, and a, a reality that is the circumstances of living in a highly multicultural context, but also just a very self-interested nation, a very self-interested uh, position and, and a defender of, of the kind of tribe that we are a part of over and against some other tribe, rather than an identity that's really grows out of an understanding of our identification in, with, for, under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And I think it's that that then inevitably leads to the confusion and eruption of polarizations that sometimes have little or nothing to do with the character of the God that we claim to worship. Yeah, that's fascinating. You know, just to dig into that for a second, and Walter, I'd love to get your perspective on this as well. There have been many indications, as Mark just said, that in many ways, oh, Americans, more of our identity has become political. It used to be that faith was one of what was called the unmoved movers of identity, one of the bedrock forms of identity. But several studies, and indeed some of our more recent guests, including Jonathan Haidt, have done research showing that actually that is shifting in America. Just one kind of indication of that, which I think is quite revealing 
feeling. In 1960, only 5% of Americans said that they would be displeased if if their child married someone outside their party. They would be very displeased, on the other hand, if they married someone outside their faith. But that has flipped. And at this point, more people would be displeased if their child married someone of a different political party than Mm -hmm. a different faith. Uh, And so I'm curious, as someone who has been a minister for many years and now leading the National Association of Evangelicals, what do you believe is driving us to increasingly self-identify as well as identify others predominantly or primarily along political lines and actually sublimated our religious identity to our our political? Thank you for the question and for hosting this conversation. I want to begin with where Mark ended in terms of this notion of Christian identity and to add another layer of complexity. It's not merely that we have these struggles with Christian identity. That's deeply a part of our struggle. But our perspective on even what Christian identity is, what serves as Christian identity, is at stake. And that's because we all begin with different cultural and therefore conversational starting points. I'll use a very homey example. When I was in the process of discerning a call to leave a a possible medical profession and to go into ministry, when I asked my Caucasian friends, deep believers, deeply formed by Jesus, what I should do, invariably the advice or questions fell along the lines of what, what do you feel called to do? What, do you, what, what are you gifted to do? What gives you joy and passion? When I asked my Asian American friends this very same question, their first response was almost invariably, what do your parents think? And again, each of those were deeply formed by a biblical worldview, one shaded toward the notion that God has given each of us gifts The other shaded us toward the notion that God has placed us in community. I think what we're encountering is that in moments of stress, complexity comes forward and we don't know how to deal with it. So we seek to simplify because that's what humans do in order to face a complex, challenging and endangering moment. And because our culture has sought to simplify the politics by creating a couple of tribes and categorizing people in those tribes, what is an underlying extremely complicated issue. Now, just by virtue of self-preservation is reduced to simplified terms in order to help us navigate it. But that, that's just not life. And so not only have we compromised the notion of human existence and its complexity, we've compromised our notion of the complexity of Christian identity itself. Claude, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, but I'm going to add a ladle, another question on top of it as well, as we go to you, which is in addition to just our identities becoming increasingly political, at the same time, there have been some deep divides, including those within the church that that are about real issues of justice, including our inability to fully reckon with a long history of racism or revelations over the last few years about the ways that the church, some ministries have even enabled and covered up abuse. And I I think about the Martin Luther King Jr. statement that 
Peace is not merely the absence of tension, but also the presence of justice. And we know that there are Christian organizations who have sought an absence of tension by, by ignoring injustice. And so would love to have your thoughts, not only kind of what is happening sociologically, kind of writ large, but also more specifically, how do we within the church learn to distinguish between those kinds of issues that do require redress and are worth bearing tension for the sake of justice and those controversies that perhaps only provide heat rather than light. So Walter, you talked about the complicated and the simple. That, that was a very complicated question. I tried to bring some simplicity to it by by saying, first of all, the polarity of our times really calls into question the notion of the integrity of our witness. And as both Mark and Walter have spoken, this notion of identity, how we identify ourselves even, even in Christ, and the integrity of our witness is, is rooted, for me at least, is rooted in one, the God who does not change, whose claim upon us has not changed, whose desire for human flourishing has not changed, and whose standards, the, the things to which he calls us, um, has not changed. And so the notion of Shalom, the notion of, of justice and righteousness, you know, those are unchanging. Justice and righteousness are the habitation of his throne, the psalmist says. Those are, those are unchanging. And so I think it begins by recognizing that, giving myself to that, and seeking to be shaped, seeking to be shaped by that. If if there has been, and Yuval Levin spoke, speaks to this, if there's been something about the church that has gone missing is that we have moved towards being more performative than shaping, than shaping. And how does that, how does that play itself out when we deal with specific issues? So do I see matters of racism, sexism, xenophobia, do I see that as discipleship? If I, if, if I don't see that as a, those things as a matter of discipleship, then there will not be any formation, no theological thought and consideration, no rigor given, such that congregants are able to really recognize that the attentions hold them and live in them and then be called to resolve them. I think that that is some formative formation. That is something that we have to really begin to address. It's not just being formed around prayer, Bible reading, worship, fellowship, but, but it's also being formed by those things that God, by his word, has said are critical. You know, justice is not a peripheral thing in the Bible. It is, it is central. And so how do we develop 
formation in individuals around that. That's great. Thanks, Claude. I want to pick up on that in just a second, but before yeah. doing that, I'll throw out a question. I'll throw this to, to you first, Mark, but anyone should feel free to, to jump in. You know, one of the difficulties that one often hears people talk about in regards to Claude's question about the about formation is people will affirm the, the fruits of the spirit and the ways of Jesus as, as true and good and beautiful. And this is what we are called into, but then also express concern, hesitancy, even a sense that, well, but that doesn't work in politics. And because more of our life is political, that becomes increasingly important that that example just doesn't work. And in some ways one has to acknowledge that one can look at different indicators and say, perhaps they have a point, whether it's the political arena or even the arena of social media, there are rewards for belligerence, aggression, self-promotion, slander, snark, and speed, all of which are quite contrary to many of the fruits of the spirit. And so I guess just to really kind of boil it down to a crass question, does following the ways and means of Jesus, Mark, mean one is destined to be a loser? Well, I suppose you could ask that at the foot of the cross, right? Mm -hmm. uh, if, if there's ever a demonstration that, quote, apparently the way of Jesus is the way of a loser, you would have thought that that was the, the proof positive that that is actually the necessary outcome. And I think it has to do with really what we do with issues of power. And, and all of us, I think, would want to affirm that one of the most profound affirmations of Jesus is that he is Lord or that he reigns in, in mercy and love and justice, and that our life is meant to be resorted in light of his power rather than in chasing or protecting or projecting other forms of power. But this is not something the church has actually dealt with very well over the years. And, and it means that we haven't been formed as disciples to take issues of power seriously. And I've written a bit about the, the fact that I think all of Christian worship is meant to be regularizing practice of reordering power. When I remember that I'm not God and God is God, I remember that I'm not only not God, I have utterly failed to even be responsible for the amount of power and influence that I may have actually been given, that I, that my task is a task of being transformed by the renewing of my mind, which is a yielding to the power of God's spirit to rewrite the scripts of power in my life. Now, to the secularist or to the person who's just, you know, a weary person in the face of, of an assault from some direction or another, that can feel like just so much abandonment of quote reality. But in fact, in the life and ministry of Jesus, it's meant to be a crucifixion of power for the sake of its being redefined for the outcome of what I think the Bible sees as communion, this union with. Now, in the face of that, will we suffer? Mm -hmm. Obviously, Jesus says, yes. Will people fail to understand? Absolutely. Will you win the day? I don't read the gospels believing that we are going to win the day. God will ultimately win the day. But between here and there, it's not going to be a matter of winning the day, as though we think the goal is in short-term 
frameworks to simply win the day. Now, that doesn't mean we lay down. It means that we try to use power for the sake of, of good and just and righteous outcomes. And, but to achieve that, we don't start with our sociology. We have to start with the life and character of God revealed in Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit by the power of God's guidance to renew us and manifest fruits of the Spirit as we do this. So what I'm getting at is that I think there's really some fundamental substructure that is showing itself to be largely absent in the life of the church. We are therefore flailing on top of a faith that hasn't actually done its, we haven't allowed it to do its work of deep personal and interpersonal and communal transformation. So the mess that we're in, in some ways, feels like it's the most logical outcome of, of so many other things that are much more powerful, but absent of the power that is the distinctive power of Jesus. So are we, as the Apostle Paul says, those who will look like fools? Yeah. Did Jesus look like a fool? Yes. Did he stop doing righteous and just things? No. So I think we're, we're, we're having a battle of outcomes and timelines, and, and all of that gets even more confusing because we haven't actually allowed the gospel to to address the substructures of our life, in our perceptions, in our compassion, in our recognition and imagination, the plausibility structures we live with, in our response to, to injustice and suffering. That is actually, it's a fascinating point, Mark. And Walter, I'd like to go to you first on this and then maybe Claude to, to talk a little bit about what that missing substructure might be. And just to embroider upon Mark's point a bit, it does seem like often there is not a robust understanding of what does it mean to, to live a public faith. Often there's an equation of living our faith out in public with certain distinct issues, political issues that one might get involved with, as opposed to those broader questions that Mark just raised about power itself. And so I'd love to hear from both of you what that kind of, that building up of that substructure or a robust public theology might actually look like. And Walter, maybe we can start with you. I want to connect it back to a comment that you made about the fruit of the spirit, the you know, kind of personal qualities. And it's easy to think about public faith in terms of our public character. In other words, how we conduct ourselves in public. And that's critical. That's very important. The posture, the characters of integrity, the ability to bring joy and peace to others. But there's a, a deeper issue at stake of not merely character, but the very presence of the gospel in society, the presence of faith in society. And, uh, you know, the Old Testament makes it very clear in the Old Testament laws, there was everything from laws that governed the ecology of the life of Israel in terms of how you handle animals and giving them rest on the Sabbath as much as you would take rest to laws about how you handle your finances and crops. Don't glean the crops in the edge of your fields so that those who are in need will always have access to food. So when you think about the Old Testament laws and the breadth of the Old Testament laws, 
you're in, you're envisioning the ways that faith is working out in every sector and domain of life. So the gospel no longer becomes this narrow vision of personal and characterological transformation, which it is including, but it also encompasses this very expansive vision of the implications of faith for every sector of human existence and endeavor. Mm-hmm. I also think about the very nature of, of scripture itself and its structure. I mean, the book of Deuteronomy in which this, these sets of laws are, are found, they're modeled after a Hittite political treaty. Now, this is a treaty of an enemy country, but it served as a model for how the book of Deuteronomy was even written. That is an extraordinary statement about common grace, mm-hmm. that there was a boldness and a confidence that the image of God and even those people who do not share faith, that God is so gracious that we might have something even to learn from the pagan nations, so to speak, from the Israelite point of view. This is an extraordinarily expansive understanding of the Christian life and the applications of the gospel. When we talk about faith in the public square, we we need to encompass not only, again, the character, but the underlying understandings that would sustain this expansive view of the implications of faith. So what I would what I would add to that is I think we must be heard making a critical point of distinction. The Christian faith is deeply personal, but not private. And I think we confuse what is personal with being private. And so the Christian witness from Genesis to Revelation is extremely personal, but it's never private. As, as, Walter, as Walter delineated, it, it, we are designed, we are called to be public witnesses. From the very beginning, dominion over the world. We are called to be light and salt. That's not private. That's very, very, that's very, very public. And so it's, it's, it's personal, but never private. While it is individual, it is never isolated. We are, we are not called to be isolated from the world. And, and therefore, this, this concern is never simply limited to us as individuals without concern of our connection to the world. I think the third point along those lines is the notion of systems and structures. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places. Systems, structures, we we are called to engage systems and structures. And I think that if, if we are able then, as we're dealing with formation, to emphasize those points and reinforce them. I think that that will help us in our development of a public theology and public engagement. That's fascinating. Just to follow up on that and add to your point about systems and structures, I'd love to ask you all about liturgies. 
And of course, liturgies embody practices which form our loves and can also deform our loves. And, and they form our loves not only as a person, but presumably as a people. And I'd love to hear from each of you your thoughts about some of the liturgies that you have found have been most formational or, or deformational mm-hmm. of our views as a people, you know, about this topic, but also what liturgical practices would be part of the kind of robust political theology that you all have been talking about. And Mark, we'll start with you on that. Well, when I was serving as a pastor in Berkeley, which is a weird and wonderful place to be a pastor, it was, it was a, a very important thing to try to understand what we were doing and how we're trying to set the table for this very thing that we're talking about on this call. And I remember we gradually developed a liturgy that we would periodically use in worship that was what was quite literally a liturgy that began with me saying, I'm not God. And the congregation saying back to me, you're not God. And I would say then, you're not God. And they would say back to me, we're not God. And then it would go into a variety of other things. Our political views are not God. Our denomination is not God. Our economics and our financial resources are not God. And it was a liturgy of trying to practice naming the things that are the potential idols before which we bow a knee rather than the living God who is actually wanting to resort all of those important areas of our life, but which none of us ourselves can do alone and none of us ourselves are free from failing to do. So therefore we need to come as a community regularly as a practice of saying, we need to remind ourselves over and over again to lay down these delusions which are sometimes also idols, but not all delusions are idols, not all idols are delusions, but many and most are. So, so my point is that it was a liturgy of practicing what you're, I think, getting at, Shuri. It also meant a, a liturgy of naming things that we find hard to grasp, like we follow an enemy-loving God. That's mm. a very... It's a very challenging liturgical affirmation. We follow an enemy-loving God. How do we know that? Because we are worshiping God and we were God's enemies. So it's not somebody else who was an enemy. (laughs) We start with the proof positive that we are enemies of God who, uh, who are being loved by God. But that also means, and then the liturgy in this regard, we go on in a different direction, And God's love includes rebuke, it includes accountability, it includes laying down and naming the the distractions and absorptions of our life that distract us from really being able to be an expression of of the love and mercy and justice of God. So I think we tried to make liturgical statements that were as concrete about the very places of the real rub. Now, that's sometimes very hard to do because people will object to such prayers. So you have to be careful, as we should be anyway. You have to be wise. You're not trying to be political, per se. You are being honest, though, about power in all of its forms and letting that become a part of the liturgical frame. Great. Walter, interested in your thoughts on that as well. Yeah, I have two areas of reflection on that, and that is the 
what are the sources of our liturgy? One of the things that we've been doing at our church here in Charlottesville Trinity is accessing liturgies from different parts of the world. And so we have this practice of morning prayer that we create a devotional and distribute it online to parishioners. And the liturgy that's contained in that is not simply from the Book of Common Prayer or other Western traditions, but we, we draw upon the, the church in Ghana. Mm-hmm. Just this past week, one of the worship songs that was included was a song translated from Farsi in the Persian church. And in each of these things, there's this global perspective that expands our imagination, even the language that's chosen to be spoken or sung is different. You you can sense the difference and that causes you to pay greater attention. So one is I would encourage us to access global liturgy. Mm -hmm. The second thing is to think of liturgy, not merely as cognitive, which is very much the ways that we as Westerners, as Americans would think about it. What can we say, think, speak together, but to think of it in physical terms as well. So the Old Testament talked a lot about prayer, not simply about the content of our prayer, but the posture of our prayer. Lift up your hands, clap your hands. Even the very terminology for worship was physical, bending, bowing. And that was a symbol of worship. So the very word of bowing was you know, the, the basis for the word for worship in, in one of the words for worship in the Old Testament. So the very physicality of it, I think also does something. So when I think about liturgy, I think about it globally, but I also think about it as embodied. What do we do with our bodies? What do you do when you're on the subway commuting to work? What, what are the habits that form you in that experience? What do you do when you first come home from work? What, what's the habit that is forming you? So I would invite us to think of liturgies, not merely as what we do on Sunday morning in terms of what we say, but the habits and the rhythms of life through the week that form us quite deeply in how we embody and navigate our life as embodied creatures. To what they've said, I would would then talk about the ends of our liturgy, and there would be several. One is humility, Mm -hmm. and that comes from one, the recognition of you being in the presence of God, right? Secondly, contrition and lament, but then also empowerment and commission. Mm -hmm. I think that, that whatever form of liturgy that we use, those elements, are crucial, especially if we're talking about then engaging a polarized world. The fact that, that, that I am empowered and commissioned to do so. In many ways, this has been a heavy topic and there's a lot of reason to feel slightly discouraged as we kind of look out over the landscape. But I was just recently rereading a, this is a short quote by G.K. Chesterton, who had written about the fact that at least five times in the history of human events, he wrote, the faith had all appeared by all appearances gone to the dogs. And in each time it was the dogs who died. <laughs> and even in the midst of discouragement, we, we all have faith that 
as Lynn is on the move. And would love to hear from you about what, what gives you hope, not only in the long term, but also in the shorter term. What trends, actions have you seen recently that has have been energizing and hopeful to you? And Mark, we'll start with you again. Well, it's a great question and a really, really important one, because I think there are many, many deeply despairing Christians right now who, who feel weighed down, right, left, middle, or otherwise. And so it's a, it's a critical issue. I do think, for me, there's the assurance that God is not the least bit surprised or undone by this moment. In fact, it's quite familiar if you look back in the pages of both the Hebrew scriptures and the New Testament, you find plenty of evidences of the makings of such moments as this. So the sense of faith against staggering power or resistance to change or to deep confession or all of that, that's familiar biblical terrain. That's why it required the death of God in Jesus to be able to actually take all of this with the deep seriousness that it requires. In, in a more pragmatic sense, I'm very heartened by many, many, many young believers and young in their faith who may be old in their wisdom, who are to me just great inspirations. I'm really inspired. I continue to be deeply inspired by the Black church and by places of its, its way of helping to lead us in this season. It feels to me like it's one of the most important elements in what could renew the American church is really the Black church. And the experience of what it means to be formed by a faithful people in a context of suffering and, and often even abuse and persecution. But I also think of, of so many young immigrant churches that I'm connected to where joyous, living, vital, honest faith is just being lived out. And they face all the inherent personal and racial and political challenges, again, right and left, and, and yet they stand into the wind. They're absolutely prepared to assume that standing into the wind is the posture of a Christian, as opposed to looking for a salve that reassures me that I have it and, and I have all that I need in my own tribe. Instead, their assumption is, I don't in any way, and the God who holds all things together is leading us not me only, but us into a new reality, which is the flip side of the despair. This is a moment when it feels like the church is having mirrors held up to itself that, that tell a more honest story than the church has been willing to tell about itself. It's tragic. It's brutalizing. It's discouraging. And it's not a surprise to God. And there's plenty of evidences of God's enduring faithfulness. That's great. Well, that we've seen this before, and it is really the context out of which the early church grew, right? Right. And so this is our legacy, and and therefore there are things that we can pull upon in this in this present moment. And the God who was faithful then is a God who is faithful now, and gives us that opportunity. Yeah. Walter. I, I would concur with that. I mean, 2 Timothy, the, the final word from the Apostle Paul, in it weaves in this story that he's in prison and he's lamenting the fact that it's here, it seems that everyone has abandoned him. Mm -hmm. And the gospel 
you know, what effect has it had? It's like the entire church of Asia Minor is gone and no one's visiting him in prison except for a handful of people. And, and yet this was the precursor of the most explosive growth of Christianity in, in the deepest opposition of the Roman Empire. And this is not simply a one-off. Again, appeal to the global church. Places where the church, where the church is thriving are places of deep suffering that distill this sense of what is the main thing and a profound dependence upon God. And there's also this sense that we have in a pluralistic society, both problems and promise. There's the complexity of navigating cultural differences, conversational starting points, as I alluded to earlier. But it's the most fertile opportunity to present Christ in a fresh way to an audience that increasingly does not have the baggage of the cultural Christianity and are asking fresh questions of what is it that Christianity really is all about? Because I don't know. What a unique moment in the American church's life. And it invites us to a fresh perspective on what it means to be a follower of Jesus in this moment. The last thing I would say is new alliances, new opportunities are growing. I, I was recently working on a video project with Asian American and African American church leaders in expressing solidarity with one another in experiences of discrimination and racism. And again, rather than staying just in a posture of lament, which is necessary for a moment, there was a deep posture of discovery here are friends that we did not know we had. And, and so again, this is a, a, a moment to discover that in Christ, we have so much in common. And this is a little bit of insider talk, right? I'm talking and addressing the church now in this, but a church that if we can live into this moment of building fresh bridges, of learning each other's stories and languages, that that also represents to a country deeply fragmented and polarized, unable to have these conversations, that wait, wait, th there's a group of people that can do this? That's extraordinary. Is this what Christianity is about? I would love for people to take a step back and say, that's the kind of Christianity that I think adds something to our society that is a blessing in this deeply polarized moment. Mark, Claude, and Walter, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a real joy. Thank you for listening to this episode in our series on faithful leadership. Be sure to subscribe to Trinity Forum Conversations to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. And if you're enjoying these, please leave us a review. Visit our website at ttf.org for more information and show notes from this episode, as well as resources such as our Trinity Forum readings and videos of past events.